Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today's episode is the first in a three-week series on racism, racial injustice, and the church, with four of this Divinity School's best and brightest alumni, all of whom are African-American pastors who love you enough to share their stories and experiences with you. We've all watched in horror yet again in recent months as Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others have been killed unjustly in racially charged altercations. This is nothing new, of course. Ethnic minorities in this country and all around the world have been killed unjustly for centuries. But something special seems to be going on around the world today as millions of people are speaking out against these sins. The Lord seems to be at work. This is what educators like to call a teaching moment, a crucial teaching moment. And so we're grateful today to have four fine teachers on the program with us. Won't you pray with us that we will be good listeners and learners? We know that many of our listeners have been active for years in the struggle for racial justice and the educational, economic, and legal uplift of people of color in America. We hope that many will continue with this struggle day by day, year by year, after the spotlight is off and the media cycle over. We're committed here at Beeson to doing better every year to make this school a wonderful home and useful training ground for our brothers and sisters of color. But for now, we want to learn from today's featured guests. So Kristen, will you please introduce them to us? Welcome, everyone, to this special Beeson podcast series. It's such a privilege and honor to introduce you to our four guests today. Our first guest is the Reverend Dr. Patricia Outlaw. She is the pastor of Oak Grove Amy Church in Florence, Alabama, the dean of the Nichols Thomas Grady Clergy Institute of the African Methodist Episcopal Church's 9th Episcopal District, and is also a licensed psychologist. She served as the Associate Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School from 2001 to 2015, where I was blessed to have her as a professor. She is the first African-American woman and the first African Methodist Episcopal clergy person to serve on Beeson's faculty, as well as the first female graduate of Beeson's D-Men program in 2002. Dr. Outlaw is the author of Soul Food for Hungry Hearts, published by Gateway Press in 2005. Welcome, Dr. Outlaw, to the podcast. Our second guest is the Reverend Dr. Mary Moss. She is the senior pastor of St. Alma Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She is also the founder and executive director of Louisiana Area Women in Ministry and is the director of the Southeast Regional Biblical Institute, which was established by Beeson's Extension Center in 2011. 
She was the first female to become pastor of St. Alma Baptist Church and the first female installed by the then 133-year-old 4th District Baptist Association. Dr. Moss earned her demon degree from Beeson in 2009, becoming the third African-American female to graduate from this degree program. Welcome, Dr. Moss, to the Beeson Podcast. Our third guest is the Reverend Dr. Thomas Beavers. He is the senior pastor of New Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church in the East Lake community in Birmingham, Alabama, and he oversees the New Rising Star Community Support, which provides educational enrichment programs, affordable housing programs, and transportation programs, as well as wellness and workforce initiatives. Dr. Beavers became the fourth pastor of New Rising Star following his grandfather, who served as pastor for 35 years. He earned his MDiv and DMIN degrees from Beeson in 2007 and 2013, respectively. And in 2018, Dr. Beavers received the Master of Divinity Distinguished Alumnus Award. Welcome, Dr. Beavers, to the Beeson Podcast. Our last guest is the Reverend Dr. Calvin Bell. He is the senior pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Bessemer, Alabama, where he has served for 20 years. He is also the resource strategist for Sanford University's Center for Congregational Resources. Additionally, he teaches Bible classes in the Jefferson County Congress of Christian Education and the Alabama State Baptist Congress of Christian Education, both which are subsidiaries of the National Baptist Convention USA. Dr. Bell earned his MDiv and DMIN degrees from Beeson in 2011 and 2017, respectively. Welcome, Dr. Bell, to the Beeson Podcast. We are so glad to have each of you on the show today, and we want to begin, as we always do, by hearing more about who you are. I've given a few details about each of you, but we would love for you to fill out those details for us. Specifically, we would like to know where you're from and how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. How about we start with you, Dr. Beavers? Thank you so much for having me. I'm Thomas Beavers and I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, born and raised. I am the fourth pastor of New Rising Star Church, affectionately known as the Star. It is one of the only churches I've ever been a part of inside of my life. How did I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Going to church was not an option. My mother drugged me to church. And so every night of the week, it was something. Monday night was Bible study. Tuesday night was choir rehearsal. Uh, Wednesday night was midweek worship. Thursday night was life recovery. Friday night was youth activity night. Saturday morning, we were witnessing in the streets. And then Sunday came and she drugged me to church and Sunday school. Gave my life to Christ when I was five years old, heard the testimony of the gospel at five years old. And so I've been walking straight away as a teenager. Eventually, I came back and I've just been loving Jesus ever since. I love God and I love his people. Glad to be here. Dr. Outlaw, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Patricia Ann Outlaw, and I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, in a section of Baltimore called Sandtown. I originally came to Cornerstone Christian Baptist Church, which was about a block and a half from where I lived in Sandtown. Uh, most of the people in my family are Baptists, and so I was baptized, immersed in the water at the same time my mother was immersed in the water. Uh, and so um, throughout uh, my elementary school years, I remain a part of the Baptist tradition. 
Uh, but in my junior high school years, I converted to Catholicism as a result of having a school assignment to visit several different churches that were not of my tradition as a result of going to the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, everything was in Latin and being curious as I was, I persuaded my mother to let me to go to the classes, catechism classes for educational purposes. And after having spent the required amount of time in those classes and also getting involved with the uh, Catholic Youth Organization, I persuaded my mother to uh, allow me to become Roman Catholic. So I converted to Catholicism at the age of 11. Also, I would make a notation that when I was in elementary school, the schools were segregated. The schools were not desegregated until 1954 with the Board of Education. So I went to an all-black elementary school. In junior high school, I went to an integrated junior high school, which was a uh, accelerated junior high school. When I went to high school, I went to all-girls uh, public high school. All my schools were public schools. And from there, I uh, became a member of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, which is a religious order of nuns, which is the oldest black order of nuns in the United States of America. So I spent five years with uh, in the convent, and I, uh, I left the convent after five years and came back into what we would call civilian life. The same year that Martin Luther King was assassinated, 1968. I'm going to stop right there. If there's something else you want to know, I can elaborate. That's just by way of introduction. I also wanted uh, to go on record to say that, yes, I do have a doctorate in ministry degree from Beeson Divinity School, which I earned in 2002. But prior to coming Beeson, I already had a Ph.D. I got a Ph.D. in human development in 1977. So I have two doctors, and my mother would want me to say that uh, because in our tradition, in our growing up years, since I'm the first generation high school graduate in my family, uh, she would want the world to know that not only did I graduate from high school because my mother and father did not graduate from high school, I also earned two doctorates, a PhD and a doctorate of ministry degree. Dr. Bell? So thank you for having me as well this afternoon. My name is Kelvin Bell. I am from a little town in West Alabama, Boyd, Alabama. That's in uh, Sumter County, uh, one of the the poorest uh, zip codes in the United States. I was raised on a little 20-acre farm uh, there in Sumter County, and I went to an all-black high school, uh, no school in high school. So um, all 12 of my years in Sumter County were in the African-American context of Sumter County is 70% African-American, but have very, blacks on very little of anything in that county. Uh, I came to faith at age 15 at Mount Olive Baptist Church. I was actually raised in the Primitive Baptist Church, but I came to faith at Mount Olive Missionary Baptist Church uh, at age 15, gave my life to Christ. I'm the pastor, Reverend Eatman, during a revival at that church. After I came to Christ, uh, you know, at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, I just began to spiral into just sinful actions and things of that nature. Uh, and then something very uh, dramatic happened at, at age 21. My sister, uh, Sandra, who's one year younger than myself, uh, she was killed in a car accident. She was actually in the, in the Army. And uh, she and some friends were out one night while they were there in the Army, and the driver went to sleep as they were coming home, kind of going back to the barracks from uh, their evening out. And so to that juncture, I had in my mind that, okay, well, I'm a Christian. I can live, get older, get serious about Christ, uh, die and go to heaven. Uh, but my sister, who died at age 19, just that really rocked my world, changed my whole perspective on 
on being serious about Christianity. And therefore, I began to read the Bible. Um, just That was the first time I really began to read the Bible for myself on a daily basis, uh, resulting in, in just me learning more about Christ and, and just becoming more and more passionate about Christ. And so at age 21, um, there was this that situation that took place. And around age 24, I was called into the preaching ministry. And uh, and so I've been uh, preaching ever since, and I served as an associate minister here at Bethel Baptist Church uh, for six years under uh, Reverend Johnny Ware uh, as, an, as a ministerial associate. And after which uh, he passed away, or well, he passed away uh, just uh, abruptly from a heart attack. Nine months later, the church uh, called me to be the pastor. So that was 20 years ago. So I've been serving at Bethel for 20 years. Dr. Moss? Yes, uh Again, I want to uh, join my colleagues in saying thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to uh, to share this morning. I too am from a very small uh, little town in Watson, Louisiana, a very, very small town. I graduated from high school in 69. So that, that gives some indication as to what era I grew up in. Busing was nothing new for us. We were bused from the day I was uh, made six years old. As it relates to my faith, I would probably, if you would call some of my family and friends, I probably would be listed as the least likely to be sitting here because as Dr. Beaver said, they literally drugged me and they drugged me for a long time. Even when I came to uh, accept the Lord Jesus Christ, that was a dragon. And uh, we, back then we had the two week revivals. Man, did I hate those two week revivals. So. I, I had to go back and ask the Lord, uh, was I really saved? Because I got tired of sitting on those benches waiting waiting for something to happen. Uh, some of my colleagues may know what that means. You had to see something back then. But um, however, uh, I came to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And it, it must have been authentic in that now uh, I don't have to write on my bio that I love God and I love people folk always tell me it's obvious. So uh, I bless God for that opportunity to be able to share that with you on today. At the top of the show, the purpose of today's episode on the podcast, as well as the two uh, following episodes, is to help our listeners learn about uh, the challenges of racism and racial injustice in our society and in our churches that we're all facing these days, but that you all have some special life experience with. And Part of the reason we invited you on the show, of course, was to get some advice from you about serving as pastors in this time. Uh, but before we get to questions about your own pastoral ministries in the midst of racism and the current racial climate and crisis, we thought we'd ask you to tell us just a little bit about your life stories, your childhoods, and the ways in which you were taught to make some kind of sense of the racial climate in our society. So would you mind telling us just a little bit about how you were raised with respect to racism and racial injustice. How did your parents uh, teach you to uh, respond to law enforcement, teach you to make sense of uh, the racial divides in our churches and so on? Could you just share with us a little bit about your, your life experience as children with respect to racism? Okay, well, as I said, I grew up in a neighborhood in Baltimore City called Sandtown. Sandtown is the same neighborhood where Freddie Gray was murdered uh, and, and picked up by police a few years ago. So I grew up in uh, predominantly, at that time, a uh, black neighborhood in Baltimore City. 
because discrimination was obvious and apparent. I grew up with the notion um, that my mother would say to me, particularly if I would come home and ask her questions as related to race, racial issues, she would remind me by saying the black of the berry, the sweet of the juice. And so that became a, a mantra for me throughout my journey uh, that whenever I would be confronted with what was uh, blatant racism, I would remind myself the black of the berry, the sweet of the juice. Uh, and where it became uh, very pertinent uh, in terms of hairstyles, uh, um, if you had straight hair or if you were light-skinned, then you were considered to be near white. Uh-huh. But if you had kinky hair, you had to uh, uh, try to accommodate to the, the white uh, establishment by pressing your hair or, or perming your hair. Uh, I became very familiar with the various hairstyles because my mom, with an eighth grade education, she became a, a licensed beautician. And so how it was that I learned to deal with systemic racism was the fact that uh, my mother was very intentional about my getting a quality education, and she would remind me that I would I would be the first in the family. I'm I'm an only surviving child. I had a sister who died long before I was born, so but so I'm the only surviving child. So I I learned that even in terms of how we language our sociologists language, what we call dysfunctional families, that uh, if your parents were not married that puts you at a disadvantage. While my parents were not married, my father was very much a part of my life and very active in my life. And it was through the church that we got a further appreciation of our, our blackness, our Africanity. And so early on, I learned that we had to do better than the other race. Even when I was in the convent in my uh, first year there, I'm reminded of uh, Sister Mary Pius, who was with the librarian. She would say, little sister, you know we got to do better than the white folks. So it was always drilled into my subconscious to excel. And the way out of Sandtown, from my mother's perspective, was for me to get a quality education. So when the opportunity came through testing, it was determined that I had certain skills. The schools were desegregated. I went to a junior high school that was across town. I had to catch two buses to go to this accelerated junior high school. And when I was, it was time for me to go to senior high school, by that time schools were uh, integrated, uh, junior high too. But my counselor said she didn't think that I had uh, what it takes to get into a special college preparatory program that, at Eastern High School. And in my mind, I said to myself, and I, and I said subconsciously, watch me. So while my counselor didn't think I had what it you know, took to get into that school, I accepted the admission to that. And I was the, the first black to be in my homeroom class, the only black uh, throughout my high school years at Eastern High School. So I always look back and remember that in my mind, I said, watch me. And that's been my, one of my mantras is to watch me. And I never allow um, my, the circumstances or racism to determine my future. I was always a fighter, even in elementary school, because I always was in the principal's office of fighting somebody. And so I learned from my mom that the way out of uh, Sandtown was to get an education. She regretted that she didn't have the opportunity to finish high school. And my dad, he, he was from North Carolina, Kenston, North Carolina. He, um, he finished the third grade, but he was an entrepreneur. He worked on the waterfront of the Longshoremen, and he owned his own business in Sandtown. And everybody in Sandtown knew that I was Bud Outlaw's daughter. And uh, 
my mother had enough um, foresight to give me my father's last name because even that was breaking with tradition because typically if you're born outside of the covenant of marriage in those days, you rarely got your father's last name. And there was a reason for that too because our last names were given to us by the slave masters. And if you had the slave master's last name, if your father was a black man or if your father was a white man, particularly if he was a white man, he was a plantation owner, they didn't want you to have the father's last name because then you could lay claim to the land. So outlaw is really not my last name. That's my slave master's name that was given to my family. I don't know the name my ancestors were brought here against their will to these shores. So I don't know what my African name is, but I do know what my slave master's name is. And my mother gave me my father's last name. And so I, I did excel. And when I got in the convent, that kind of crystallized for me my academic prowess, if you will, because I had an opportunity to stay focused and to accomplish certain things. And then I came out of the convent in 68 in response to a call by uh, the president of Loyola College, because when he spoke at our convocation, he said, go into the city. The cities were burning when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I was in the convent and uh, I felt a call to come back out. And I came out and became a social worker for a year, and then I pursued my, my work in psychology and became a psychologist. I also had a double calling because I was called into ministry. Even in elementary school, uh, an evangelist, a female evangelist came to our Baptist church, and she perceived in Sunday school and said that she thought I had a call to ministry. Of course, I didn't think much of it at that time as a youngster, but later, after I came into the AME church, African Methodist Physical Church, I had the privilege of crossing paths with that evangelist. One night, she did a revival at the church where I was attending. And I told her I was the little girl that she had prophesied would be a preacher someday. And so I became a preacher in African Methodist Episcopal Church. 82, I accepted my call to preach, 1982. Thank you. Dr. Bell, I'm looking at you next because I'm thinking you grew up in a pretty different part of the country than Dr. Outlaw grew up in. Your childhood like when it came to um, racism in the society, in the church, with respect to law enforcement? Dr. Sweeney, I, as I forestated earlier, I grew up in a little town in West Alabama, Boyd, Alabama. It was a cotton town. It was known for its cotton fields. It's actually, the Black Belt, so something County is known for its very rich soil. And so my, my mother, well, her family was sharecroppers. My mother was one of 17 kids. My grandparents had 17 children. And and so the oldest of the, the 17, they were sharecroppers on, on white landowners' farms. My grandfather, uh, Willie Carlisle, he was known to be kind of a, a, a very aggressive type man. Uh, in Sumter County back in, in those days, it was nothing for uh, white people. If a black person got out of order, um, white men would actually whip uh, a black man or, or his family member in the field, in the cotton field, if they, if they, were, they were unruly or whatever the case. Well, my grandfather had a name for not being tolerant of, of white people uh, whipping him or going to, to uh, you know, try to do that. My, my grandfather didn't, didn't even allow the white owners of the, of the land to even give instruction to his children. So what he would always say uh, to uh, any person that uh, his family was working for is that if, you know, if you want to, on one occasion, one white man was going to uh, tell one of my uncles, well, you, I need you to do such and such. And my grandfather stopped him and said, listen, don't you ever speak to one of my kids about, about giving, instructing them as to what to do. Uh, you tell me uh, what you want them to do, and I tell my children what to do. On one particular situation with my grandfather, uh, Willie Carlisle, uh, he and a couple of his first cousins were, were plowing uh, a field with mules, old, old mule and, and a, a busted plow. They were busting up a field uh, for this white gentleman. 
uh, and Boyd. So it was, they had been out there plowing uh, probably since 5, 6 o'clock that morning. It was about midday. And so my grandfather and, and the, the couple of guys decided they were going to take a break and, and rest the mules for a moment. Well, about that time, the landowner uh, pulled up where they were. And and the other two guys, gentlemen, when they saw uh, the landowner come in, they, they just kind of went right back to work. But my grandfather said, well, gosh, we just stopped. And we're going to take, I'm going to take my break. The owner got out of the truck. He said, my grandfather, you know, Willie, I'm not paying you to, uh, you know, let that effing new sit there. And, uh, you know, I, I'm paying that you to, uh, to, to have that new working. My grandfather said, well, I, we, we just started taking a break. So I'm just taking a light break and we'll get back to work. Well, uh, the, the landowner had another white gentleman with him. So the man said to my grandfather, again, you need to go ahead and, and you know, get back to work. Uh, with, with, so you, uh, you all can go ahead and finish busting up the field. My grandfather said, just give me a few minutes and I'll get back to work. And by that time, the white gentleman drew back on to hit my grandfather. And my grandfather reached in his pocket and pulled out his switchblade. He said, if you swing your hand, you're going to draw back up. He said a cuss word, a nub. Uh, and so and the, the white gentleman that was with the landowner says, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting uh, what granddaddy told me, this, this man's words, so you all excuse the N-word, but, but the gentleman that was with, my, uh, with the landowner said that you got a bad nigga up on your place, uh, Mr. Sewell, you got a bad nigga up here. And so uh, usually when that kind of situation happened in Sumter County in West Alabama, because we were like three, four miles from the Mississippi line as well, and so there, there's just some horrible stories I can tell you about what happened in those days down there. So any time a situation like that would happen, any black person that was going to stand up against a white person in those days, they knew that that uh, that night, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, they were going to come get you. Um, and so uh, my grandfather knew, uh, you know, what situation was going to look like. And most most people in that kind of situation would actually flee and, and flee the area and move north or somewhere so that, you know, they can live and survive. Well, my grandfather wasn't going to run. That, that just wasn't his, his M.O. And uh, the white gentleman uh, went back and they decided, OK, well, we're going to we're going to go and get this nigger. We're going to we're going to we're going to kill this nigger is what they what the what they had planned to do. But the, uh, the landowner had better sense than, than the other white gentlemen uh, who were around that area. The landowner said, you know what? So you all can go up there uh, and get that nigger. Try to get that nigger if you want. You can go up there and try to get him. But I'm going to tell you this, that y'all will get him for sure. But that nigger is going to kill some of y'all. And do you know, based on the words of the landowner, that those white guys never came to get my, my grandfather? Uh, and so, so in my family heritage, even uh, though, you know, uh, they were sharecroppers, my grandfather and his family they moved around quite a bit because he was just not one that was going to tolerate uh, white people, uh, you know, mistreating his kids, mistreating his family. And his, his whole stance was birthed from uh, him seeing his mother being drugged out of, a, uh, out of her house on a rainy morning when she had the flu when he was three years old. Again, they, they were living on this white man's land. My uh, great-grandmother, she would cook for this gentleman. Uh, and she had to get up at 5 o'clock every morning and be, well, be at his house at 5 o'clock every morning to start getting things ready and prepared. Well, she had the flu and it was raining and she just felt terrible and she couldn't get up. And that white man came down to their house, grabbed her and drug her out the house, up to his house so that she could do her work. And, and at three years old, my, grand, my great-grandfather had passed away uh, just shortly after my uh, grandfather was born. And so just um, that situation was just forever etched in his memory. It was stained in his mind. And so granddad had just a deep hatred pretty much for white people. Uh, and so with that, just fast forward and from, from just granddad and, and my, my, so my mother, you know, she, she as, as uh, we were growing up on that little small farm there in Sumter County and, and boy, our little 20-acre uh, plot was surrounded by great large farmers, farms. And uh, we were one of 
three black fam- families in that area on the, on that road that actually had property. The, the majority of the people that lived on that, that road that, that I lived on when I was a boy, uh, they were living on white people's land. Uh, and those families actually worked for the white people. And I saw just some of the most uh, inhumane treatment. The white landowners, they talked to people who were twice their age, just call them by the name, call them, you know, boy, or, you know, just whatever. And so it was terrible watching white landowners treat people in the 80s, when the 70s and the 80s, I left some county in 1987, I was born in 69. It was terrible watching white people treat black people uh, as though they were slaves, you know, uh, you know on, on those plots and on those farms. And so I was privileged in my day to to not have to to uh, live on somebody else's farm. And so I didn't have to work for a white person in a hayfield or whatever the case, uh, unless I wanted to. But most of the young men around in my area, the young women, they had to go and, and work for, for white people. You know, again, my brother, who's four years my senior, he actually picked cotton. Uh, and so by the time I came along, the cotton fields were kind of waning out and they were going to corn and other vegetables or what have you. One a last story I'd like to tell you is, uh, so in the area where I lived, there was also a, a, a large plots of uh, land for hunting. And so there was a great hunting, deer hunting areas, quail hunting, rabbit hunting, et cetera. In the wintertime, you know, on that road we lived, there were going to be people coming from all over the United States there to hunt. On one particular day, uh, one of my cousins and I, we were riding our bike, and um, there were three young white guys in a pickup truck uh, going up to one of the hunting clubs. And just so happened, my cousin was with me. He happened to look back. And he, when he looked back, he said, they called me Babe, but my nickname is Babe. He said, Babe, I did your bike. And by the time I turned, those, those guys, they were running about 60 miles per hour in that truck. They opened the door with the intention of knocking us off the bike, probably would have killed us. And so we had to ditch our bikes into a barbed wire fence. And, and that was the first time that anger welled up in me like, like never before, Dr. Sweeney, or the, to the team I'm speaking with. Anger welled up in me. And I think that a hate was birthed in me for white people that day that, that I brought to Jefferson County when I moved here in 1987. Uh, and so it just I, I couldn't understand what was in those. And they were laughing about it. I mean, they never slowed up, kept going. And so you could see them looking back, laughing, hanging out the one out the door like, you know, you, you could have killed us. And then we were cut up from this barbed wire. So I, I had that kind of frustration. And then another story, that same cousin that I mentioned, his father had been drinking one, one uh, Sunday. And uh, he and his family, they were in the car, and white guy, man's land that they lived on. Oh, this gentleman, he was driving down the dirt road, and the white gentleman was coming in the opposite direction. Well, uh, the gentleman, uh, black gentleman who was driving the car kind of uh, uh, swerved over into the lane, and the, so they hit head on. They weren't going very fast, but the, the white gentleman and the man who lived on the spot lived head on. So the man, the, 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 my cousin, he, his, his uh, dad had his wife, Three of their daughters, and I think, and the young, the youngest son in the car with him. This white gentleman got out of his Toyota pickup truck, snatched the, 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 the gentleman out of his car, he kicked him in his behind. I'm standing there on my bike. I'm standing there looking with my other cousin on, on his bike. He kicked him in his behind in front of his his wife and his and five or six of their children in his behind, um, and said, you know, he cursed him out and you know called him all kinds of names or whatever. And so in that well, that just stirred an anger and inspired me. You know, for the first time, I thought, gosh, you know, if, if I were big enough, if I was strong enough, uh, I'd, I'd kill that man for, for doing that to, to, to his, um, his uh, um, um, uh, that man in front of his family like that. But again, you know, that wasn't my place. But I will never forget the injury that that did to me as a, as a human being. 
uh, in this place, again, it's 70% black, and black people in Sumter County own very little of anything. So we were very impoverished, very poor. Again, my family was one of the privileged families that we didn't have very much. My mother, again, was, worked at a sewing plant. My dad worked on the, the state highway department. Uh, and so we were, we were, we were, we didn't have very, very much, but again, I was much more privileged than most of the kids who lived in, 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 in that little town. Thank you, Dr. Bell, for sharing those um, horrible stories with us. You know, I think a lot of white young people in particular just don't realize how recent some of these evils are uh, in our history. So I'm, I'm grateful for you, to you for, uh, for sharing those with us. Dr. Moss, how about we turn to you and ask what your childhood experience was like with racism? Let me start with the fact that uh, my dad and mom were actually two individuals who were reared in different cultures. Daddy was always, and his family, they always owned land. They, we never lived on any plantation or any white man's land. My mother was just the opposite. She lived on a plantation. So she came with different fears, different, very careful how she walked and how she talked. Because I think, and we never saw it, but I think she had experienced some racism and some of the things that doc, uh, Dr. Bell had talked about. But my father was always an entrepreneur as well as a landowner. He started with having a logging business and he was indeed a carpenter. And, and so he had a whole different framework and we were raised in, in that mindset because of dad. As it relates to racism, it was very prevalent because it was a time when the Ku Klux Klans were very prevalent. And so what we experienced as children uh, and particularly my brothers, that's why I'm so passionate about uh, the black male. They were instructed time and time again, you cannot go here, son, because the girls were always stay at home. So we didn't hear that. You must not talk that way or you end up in trouble, which meant that my brothers grew up with fierce anger and hated white folk. I didn't care too much for them either, but I didn't face what they had to face. And we never had to work outside of the home. So Klux uh, uh, clans were prevalent. A lot of people in my area were very, very fearful of them. They made themselves known. If you, if you went to the store, the clerks will make sure that they wait on them and they'll engage in long conversation. It was almost like a demeaning of our humanity. And so uh, certainly you're going to look. And one of the questions that resonated with me and, and my family and my siblings, why? Why are we kings and queens at home? And I don't know if you understand this, but daddy always told us that we were somebody. We were the smartest. We were entrepreneurs. My grandfather was a blacksmith. So we had a, a tad bit of arrogance. And I think it was a healthy arrogance because it protected us so that when white folk came at us, we were ready to spit on them too because they weren't, they didn't mean anything to us, but it was built inside of us. My daddy was so adamant about his feelings uh, about who he was and ultimately and subsequently with 
with other black people. So we watched daddy move people off of the plantation. Uh, I had an uncle uh, who lived on a plantation and my daddy found him a job. You you better than that. You don't have to put up with this old man talking to you and, and you 50 years old and they calling you boy. And so because of that, my uncle became a landowner. So we take great pride in that. And uh, it, it, it helped us to survive, but it didn't eradicate racism. It was very, very prevalent. But even as we began to walk, I went to a segregated school. I never went to uh, an integrated uh, school. My sister right behind me did. Uh, and they were, they were saying that they were glad I didn't have to go because I was outspoken. Uh, uh, the color of a man's skin did not stop me from saying what I had to say or to do what I had to do. It was drilled in us. And so I guess they say, well, it's best you stay here because remember I told you my mom came from a different kind of, of upbringing. So that's pretty much uh, my piece. And I guess when you ask what impact uh, did, uh, did racism have on my childhood, so shielded until the only thing that it did for me was to raise questions that no one could answer. And that question was why? Whether it was my grandmother being called um, by younger white kids by her first name, I couldn't understand that when we were taught to uh, respect and obey our elders. And then you got this little white girl calling you Danny. And so all the way home, I'm going, well, grandma, she's younger than I am. Why, what's she doing? How, you know, why? So why became, I still ask why you know, because it's still there. So basically I came up in that kind of environment. Racism was strong, but we were somewhat shielded, but we yet had our why. Dr. Beavers, last but not least, I'm gonna end episode number one uh, by hearing from you. You are both the youngest member of our panel and you're somebody who I think uh, grew up in the Birmingham area, has a more urban childhood experience. What was your childhood like with respect to racism? Yeah, so thank you so much. Um, I'm black, but I grew up privileged. My mom is a judge. She's a circuit court judge in Jefferson County, Alabama. And so uh, I grew up kind of shielded from racism. Parents taught me about racism. They taught, although they taught me about racism, I shielded from racism until I became adult. So um, I remember when I was in the ninth grade or the eighth grade, and the four officers were on trial for the beating of Rodney King. And I remember all of them getting off and all of them being acquitted uh, in spite of that beating being displayed on video. And I, I remember the L.A. riots. And uh, that was the first time I had a glimpse of the racism that I was taught that really exists. And so I had a faraway glimpse. And then as I became older and we came into the age of social media, I would hear different people dying, unarmed black men, unarmed black women at the hands of white police officers. And I would see people uh, marching around the country. And uh, then there was a phrase, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And uh, I began to wonder, like, man, are those people going overboard? Do people really get killed because of the color of their skin? Dr. King marched years ago you know, does this stuff really go on? Until uh, I remember specifically in the year of 2014, 
my wife and I uh, took our family to Disney World and we stayed at a condominium just outside of Disney World. One particular morning, my wife and I decided to go for a walk around the neighborhood and all of our children and grandchildren. I know I look too young to have grandchildren, but I do. Uh, all of them stayed in the condominium. Well, as we're walking around this neighborhood, just taking a morning stroll, we noticed a helicopter flying around the neighborhood. And the helicopter kept circling the neighborhood. And as we continued to walk, the helicopter was only circling us. So we looked up into the sky and the helicopter kind of tilted over. When the helicopter tilted over as if it was turning, we noticed that it said sheriff. And as soon as we looked back down, there were two sheriff cars that came to a screeching halt in front of me and my wife. Mm -hmm. Two police officers got out of one car. One uh, Latino police officer got out of the other car. All three of them had guns pulled on my wife as well as myself. They told us to get on the ground. Uh, they told us to turn around, to lay flat uh, on our bellies. They came and they handcuffed us. They detained us. They put my wife in one police car. They put me in another police car and they detained us for maybe about an hour and 15 minutes. And I, I remember this neighborhood. It was an affluent neighborhood and the neighbors started to come out of the house and the police officers started to give high fives to the neighbors and the neighbors started to high five the police officers and they were saying, yeah, we got them. So finally they got us out of the car out of about, uh, after about an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, when they got us out of the car, we said, sir, do you mind telling us, you know, what we did? They said, well, there's been a, a robbery and a, burg a burglary inside of this community and you two fit the description of the person who did it. And uh, they said, obviously, you know, now we know that you didn't do it, but I want you to know that you fit the description of the person who did it. And the first thing the officer said to me says, if you run, I am going to tase you. And so uh, I remember just being infuriated. I remember being embarrassed uh, because here it is. I'm wondering as I look on social media, uh, do people really get profiled because of the color of their skin? And it was not until 2014 when I became an adult uh, that what my mom taught me as a child, that racism is alive and well, and you will get profiled just because of the color of your skin. And I realized how privileged I was in Birmingham, Alabama, growing up with a mom who was a judge and a grandfather who was a prominent pastor in the city. When I got away from my privilege, when nobody knew me, when nobody knew my mom, nobody knew my grandfather, I realized that you could get profiled just because of the color of your skin. And in that moment, it was not about me being right. It was about me living to see the next day. But I quickly saw how these kinds of instances could have gone the other way because I was so infuriated. I did not want to obey the orders of the police officers. I wanted to have choice words with the police officers. There were things I wanted to say. There were things that I literally wanted to do, but I could only think about living to see the next day. But I can also think about how other people who are in the same situation can end up saying something and be right in what they say. But just because you're right in what you say, you can escalate it instead of de-escalate it and the situation can go an entirely different way. Later on, they Googled me, they found out I was a pastor and they apologized, but after the apology, the damage was already done. Lord have mercy.
uh, racism is still with us. I think we all know that. And if you didn't know it uh, a couple of months ago, you certainly know it now if you're watching the TV news. You have just listened to the first of what will be three uh, episodes of a podcast series here at Beeson Divinity School on racism, racial injustice in the churches. You have been listening to Dr. Patricia Outlaw, Dr. Mary Moss, Dr. Thomas Beavers, and Dr. Calvin Bell. We thank you for tuning in. We promise that in the next episode, we will talk about these guests' experience with uh, racism and racial injustice in society and in the church in their adult lives. So please do tune in next week. But for now, we say goodbye. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.